And now to the unusual case of Martin Shkreli. The former pharmaceutical executive is known across social media for obnoxious insults, bashing people, and broadcasting much of his life online. His lawyers have had to walk him away from the media at the trial, and the court, the judge, ordered him to stop discussing his case around the courthouse. But yesterday, during hour after hour of closing arguments by prosecutors in his fraud trial in Brooklyn Federal Court, Shkreli could only sit and listen as the prosecutor called called him a liar who doubled down on his crimes when the going got tough and executed a brazen con. Joining us is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Peter, let's try to sum up, if you can, what the prosecution's case against Shkreli ended up being. Well, not surprisingly in any fraud trial, it's that he was a liar. And so what they brought out were a series of witnesses and emails that show him uh, saying one thing or saying that one thing would happen when, in fact, something else happened. So really, this is like the typical fraud case saying that, well, you said one thing and didn't explain it fully, or you, in fact, did uh, something very different. Of course, the challenge is that many of the investors in the hedge fund that he ran ended up making a lot of money. And so what's missing here are the typical fraud victims, people who can come in and say, you know, I lost my life savings or I at least lost all this money. So the government's pointed to the lies. The defense has said nobody lost anything. So, Peter, what what is the government's theory here? It is sort of an unusual fraud case in, in the way you're describing it. So what's what's their theory of why he's guilty? Well, the, the theory is that, you know, that the investors got a little lucky and that there is a victim here, which would be the pharmaceutical company, Retrofin. He used that company's shares to pay off the investors in the two hedge funds that he ran so that you know, ultimately the company lost out on the use of the shares, although even there it gets fuzzy because the pharmaceutical company has really done quite well, uh, especially since he left as CEO. And so in a sense they're a victim, but in another sense um, the company hasn't really been harmed in its operation. So the government has pointed to the lies, saying even though this turned out all right, it's a fraud whether you're successful or not. Peter, the defense has tried to portray him as a misunderstood eccentric who slept on the floor of his office. Ben Braffman, his attorney, said, who does that if you're committing a fraud and you have millions of dollars in people's money? He has no life. He's the hermit scientist. Does that work? <laughs> uh, well, certainly, I, I guess a possibility. Uh, you're not exactly sure what's going to play with a jury, but um, when you have someone who has clearly said things that did not turn out to be true or that were at least misleading, but in fact worked very hard, had an eccentric personality, um, you accentuate the human part of it. And also, too, and in his closing, uh, Brafman said, good faith is a defense. And so it, maybe he was doing weird things, but he was doing weird things in order to benefit everyone, and good faith can be a defense to a fraud claim. Whether it works, it, certainly we're going to have to see, but that is one avenue of trying to fight these charges. Joining us now is Patricia Hurtado, a Bloomberg News legal reporter who has been covering the trial. Pat, 
my first question has to be about Shkreli's behavior in the latter part of the trial. We heard from you before about some of his antics in the beginning. Well, he certainly calmed it down a little bit. I think there must have been some kind of uh, uh, straight talk uh, speak, speech given to him, um, and he's been uh, very muted. He has not really said much. I mean, he's still live uh, blogging after court and making postings on Facebook, but um, after court, but nothing in the courtroom. And mainly what he's done is basically sometimes uh, rolling his eyes or mugging you know, disbelief or mock incredulity when the government was speaking yesterday during a four-hour summation. Pat, given his sort of inability to restrain himself from rolling his eyes and the rest, it's a little interesting, isn't it, that he didn't take the witness stand? Uh, yeah, I think his uh, you know, stronger heads prevailed uh, on that, that he was, there's too much exposure. I mean, there's multiple statements he gave. He gave statements to the SEC under oath that contradict um, what he told investors. There's also statements he made to the FBI in a 302. So all of that would have been opened the door. You know, what did he say in emails? What did he tell um, investor clients? What did he tell uh, retrofin uh, drug company officials? And what did he tell the SEC? and what did he tell the FBI and the government? So all of those are contradictory, and that would have opened up a host of issues for him had he taken the stand. Peter, also, by not taking the stand, the jury wasn't told about what he's notorious for, raising the price of a potentially life-saving drug by 5,000 percent. But knowing jurors, they sometimes know things that they're not supposed to. Is there a likelihood or a high probability that some of these jurors do know that? Uh, certainly, there's chance of that. Um, I'm sorry, Pat, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, so, I mean, there's certainly a chance, but the judge is going to emphasize that don't consider anything except what you heard at the trial. And so, um, you know, w- will that be an issue for the jury? Yeah, certainly, hopeful it's not. If that were to emerge, it would be a problem if there were to be a conviction. Pat, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I was just going to say, is the judge is all, Peter's right, that judge has instructed them, you can't consider, and every day um, she asks them, you know, have you read anything outside, and what? please don't consider it, it's not part of the evidence. But what um, Shkreli's defense team has done is they've hitched their star to this argument that Shkreli wasn't really trying to defraud people. He was so busy creating this company, Retrofin, and he wanted to make it a success to uh, create life-saving drugs. So that's the kind of narrative the defense has put out there to the jury. Here's a guy that was just like this crazy, brilliant genius creating life-saving drugs. And so, um, and he was doing right by the world. So he wasn't intending to defraud. That's just sort of like happenstance. Well, Pat, the, the government did put in a lot of evidence of, you know, emails and things that he has said while he was there. What, what was kind of the more dramatic stuff that really made the government's point for them in terms of the evidence? Well, one of the things that was quite stunning to me was um, they compared what he told the uh, each investor he would get. He promised uh, daily updates on their returns as part of the hedge fund clients, and then it dwindled down to weekly, and then it dwindled down to some for monthly, and then some at time it dwindled down to quarterly reports. But he was promising, like, you got 49% returns, I've grown you. So they compared what he claimed 
their investments were doing versus what they were actually doing. So he claimed to have up to $50 million of assets under management in his hedge fund when it was really just $330. So when they compared the bank records and his personal statements or that Retrofin was on the verge of going bankrupt, well, he's claiming that it was a wonderful company and it was doing so well, and that's really why he was helping. He, the argument the government has made is he used Retrofin after he, you know his hedge fund collapses and he creates Retrofin and that he loots Retrofin to repay investors of the hedge fund. And the government was pointing out today that Retrofin wasn't doing so well either. So if he was giving away shares uh, in that new drug company, it wasn't such a great deal that they were getting. Peter, the defense rested its case without calling any witnesses. As Pat mentioned, Shkreli did not take the stand himself, and the judge will instruct about that not having an impact on the jury. But does it have an impact on the jury, the fact that he didn't take the stand and that there were no witnesses in his test in his case in chief? Well, certainly the, the defendant not taking the witness stand but proclaiming or the lawyer proclaiming his good faith um, it's going to cause a question in the jurors' minds, but really the defense here is putting out the proposition that it, all right, everything the government said doesn't prove the crime, and so it is a high-risk, high-reward approach saying we're not going to put on any evidence. I'm not exactly sure what evidence they would have been able to put on. They made their point through the various investors who either couldn't say how much money they made or admitted, look, yeah, I ended up making money, the hedge fund investors. And so what they just want to do is plant a few seeds. If you don't put on a defense case, you can't have the jury react negatively to your case in that regard. So it's a strategy. Um, It's risky, and, uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Pat, Given that the defense didn't put on any case, you know, you've just got the prosecution's evidence and then they give a pretty fiery summation. How confident did the government appear in putting on its case against Shkreli? I think they basically they did a um, summations were very workmanlike, albeit they were four hours long. And so when you see the evidence sort of amassed in front of you with these emails where Shkreli seems to be mocking people behind their back and telling one person one thing, and yet the bank account says something completely different. And then at one point, they showed jurors an email yesterday that said, um, can you tell, telling an associate of his, can you vouch for me for this new hedge fund client? It doesn't really effing matter what, you know, really happened. Just just say good things about me, basically. And that kind of thing shows that, you know, I mean, the government seems to be going to say, we're going to be happy to rely on our, the totality of our evidence. You know, we don't need to be as fiery and dramatic as Ben Brathman is obviously very effective. And um, well, the prosecutor had a really good, an interesting point today. She said, you know, some people have said, well, Shkreli made these people whole after the fraud, you know, after this fund collapse. So what's the harm there? They got, quote unquote, walking away money. And she said, basically, if you rob a bank and then you rob another bank to pay off the first bank, you still robbed the first bank. And she said, that's fraud. And under the law, you should be held, he should be held accountable. So Pat, where, just as a matter of where we are procedurally, where does this trial stand right now? 
Well, the judge is giving legal instruction to um, the jury right now. It started about an hour and a half ago, and uh, it's supposed to going to take hours. There's eight counts, and it's a 93-page charge. So I think we're in page 20-something of it right now. So the jury could get the case uh, later today, which means they would start deliberations um, probably early after- late afternoon. Peter, let's switch to another uh, case, which uh, you've both uh, covered, and that's Billy Walters, who was convicted of insider trading and given four years in prison. Um, Were you surprised by—I'm sorry, five years in prison for insider trading. Uh, Were you surprised by that number? Um, uh, No. I mean, it was down a little bit from what the sentencing guidelines recommended— um, I, the, the judge, I think, made it clear when he turned down the request for a new trial that um, he just did not believe Walters and the whole claim that Walters was just a great gambler and got a good read on a stock, much like he did uh, at the poker table. And so when the judge thinks you're a liar, the judge isn't going to cut you a lot of slack. So. Uh, you know, that this was something, I think it was certainly within the range that he was likely to receive, given the dollar figures involved. Pat, I was surprised at what the judge said. He said, Billy Walters is a cheater and a criminal and not a very clever one. The crime was amateurishly simple. And, and here's a man who was known as uh, Las Vegas's most successful gambler. You know, the judge, I think, was probably swayed by, I mean, the evidence, uh, even though he was quite a problematic witness, was this friend of uh, Billy Walters uh, and golfing buddy, Dean Foods co-chairman, company's chairman, Tom Davis. And Davis had a whole litany of problems, including two failed marriages, an angry ex-wife, horrible emails. Um, But, you know, the evidence really the story that Davis told was he'd been corrupted by Walters um, because he loaned him money. And Walters sort of held that carrot out to promise that Davis could maybe earn more money in the future and could do deals with him because Billy was so successful. So I think the judge seemed really troubled by what happened to Davis. And while Davis was a problematic witness, who's his friend, but Billy Walters, who, you know, corrupted his position. And Peter, People may know this case uh, as it's had a connection to Phil Mickelson. So why don't you explain what how Phil Mickelson escaped from uh, the clutches of the prosecutors here? Well, interestingly enough, uh, Mickelson, the government described generally, and he settled uh, by repaying the SEC um, as a tippy, but the government didn't have enough evidence to connect him. And then when he got uh, on the witness list for the Walters trial, Um, His lawyer uh, asserted the Fifth Amendment on his behalf and said he's not coming in to testify. And so what really made this case famous, more than just Billy Walters being a well-known gambler, is the fact that you had um, a master's champion who got tied up in this in a a very sordid tale. Um, So Mickelson was able to uh, skirt the edges of the law, although he did have to pay the SEC about a million dollars to essentially square it with them and, I'm sure, avoid being charged civilly by them. I want to thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law and covering two cases. That's beyond the call. That's Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University, and Patricia Hurtado. She's a Bloomberg News legal reporter who's been covering these trials. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. We'll be back. 
back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Wall Street time. And thanks to our producer, David Sutcherman, and our technical director. You can always find the latest legal news at BloombergLaw.com and BloombergBNA.com, plus a website for the legal community at BigLawBusiness.com. Coming up, we're going to be going as soon as a President Trump appears on stage at the Van Nostrand Theater in Brentwood, New York, to speak about efforts to curb the activities of an international gang to law enforcement. We'll be going live to that. This is Bloomberg.